Welcome to another edition of Amana Podcast, which is a collective of people, places, things, and actions that transcend us. And how do you live through your higher virtues, your value systems, what takes you off course, and what brings you on? So today, it's my great pleasure to invite my friend to the to the guest chair of Anthony Ross. Say good day, Anthony. Hey, Mark. How are you, mate? Good. It's a uh, there must be in the last few podcasts here the Aussie theme. So uh, once again, Anthony's Australian. However, we did meet in America. In fact, uh, at Pepperdine University, where Anthony played college tennis. So we'll have a discussion today around his career, um, but also life, of course. So. Ross, why don't we kick it off and start riffing around some of the things that you've cared about maybe growing up as a tennis player in Australia and kind of what led you to the States, why tennis was important to you, and uh, we'll, we'll dive in from there. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so I grew up in a little town called Biloela in central Queensland, 5,000 people. It was really a sports-mad Place. Like basically all you did as a kid was play sports. So uh, I guess yeah, starting as a value and naturally I think I was a competitive kid. So I was drawn to sports and that's what I remember most about <laughs> childhood basically yeah. is just playing all sorts of different sports. Um, but it was interesting because when I started playing tennis, tennis was the one that I was drawn to most. And when I think back about it now, I'm well, I'm sure we'll get to, you know, I now work as a, as a sports psychologist and having thought a lot about this, you know, over many years, I think just because I was sort of so competitive as a, um, uh, you know, as a person, I, I really liked that sense of it all being on me, I guess, the individual nature of it and so forth. So that's eventually from about the age of 13, I would say, I just uh, only played, only played tennis. Uh, and a coach by the name of Gary Stickler, who coached Pat Rafter, who you, you, I'm sure you remember, was from my region. He got the job as the state coach in Brisbane. Uh, so I started traveling down and staying at Gary's place. I just got more and more into it. And I just, I mean, I loved tennis. I, I, I just loved the competing. I loved the, um, you know, hanging out with my mates and um, uh, just just loved everything about it. So, so I, once I got to about sort of, 14, I was maybe top five in the state, I guess. You maybe, I don't know, 10 to 20 in Australia. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I started, I guess you start hearing about the possibility of going to college in the States. Uh, of course, I wanted to be a professional player, but I wasn't anywhere near good enough or the standard that I could consider that at that point. I kept working hard throughout high school, had some great coaches. And at, by the end of high school, I was thinking, well, maybe I, I would like to give professional tennis a go. So I did play um, on, the, on the tour at the lowest level for two years, I think. But at that point, you know, I still wasn't anywhere near good enough to, to keep going with that. And when, at that point, you, you didn't have a limit of one year after high school to start college. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, so I had two years and I had a couple of, uh, a couple of good mates actually at Pepperdine at the time. Uh, who you you know well, Troy Budgen and Brad Sini, and I had a link through the coach at the time, uh, great psychologist and, and coach Alan Fox over there. I was actually working with his brother, who's a psychologist in Australia, 
and so I had the link there. So in the end, uh, I ended up going to to Pepperdine and and um, and yeah, had an awesome experience there. So that was sort of a yeah, from a tennis point of view, growing up, it was it was yeah, really <laughs> really tennis tennis focused, as I said, and and sport focused, and uh, probably a limited upbringing in that I didn't have a lot of variety of of uh, um, you know culture and that sort of thing. It was just all sport, yeah. Well, and you are a Queenslander, so coming from Queensland, it's you know you come from beautiful weather, and uh, it's conducive to a lot of sports up there. Tell us a little bit more about your interaction with Michael and and the introduction to eventually to Alan. Yeah. So what happened was when I was, it might have been grade 12, my final year of high school, or or just when I'd finished, I was hanging out a lot with uh, a guy by the name of Scott Draper, who was yep. a, a really good tennis player. And he had started working with Michael. And then to make a bit of money, so it must have been when I've just finished high school, we, Tennis Australia or Tennis Queensland had trips where we'd go out into the outback, into different towns and put on tennis clinics and you'd play a, a play a match and, um, and you'd train during the week and you'd, you'd coach kids and all the families and, and it was actually a lot of fun. And I did a lot of those trips with Scott Draper at the time and he'd started working with Michael uh, and he had incredible success really quickly. I mean, he was a super talented, super talented player who was underachieving massively. And and mm-hmm. Michael basically helped him turn his his career around really quickly. So he encouraged me to start seeing Michael. So yeah, so I started working with Michael at that point, and it was um, yeah, it was just fantastic. Basically, really to this day, he's one of the biggest influences on my life. Just um, He's he's a guy just super super helpful, rational, uh, natural competitor, and and so forth. So he really helped my game at that time, and then um, and then he also worked with Troy Budgeon, who was at Pepperdine, and so that's how it sort of got going. It just started those links. He talked to Alan. Um, I think Alan was um, Alan had actually right around that time he was retiring from college coaching, mm-hmm. and so there was going to be a new coach. But that was really the link that that gave me the chance to be able to come to Pepperdine, yeah. And it's interesting because it's certainly, well, you know, we, we grew up around the same time where there wasn't a lot of sports psychologists. That was probably still an unusual or or for very elite people um, to, to work with, at least in my experience. And just to give our listeners, uh, Michael and Alan Fox are brothers. I think they're from California, but Alan... Yeah became a top 10 player in the world and a sports psychologist and uh, and eventually your coach. Um, but I, and I don't know Michael quite as well, but I know Michael had a big influence on a lot of uh, young Aussie tennis players. So once you, once you got over to the States, so here you are, you're now in Malibu, California, which is, I'm sure your eyes popped out of your head when you first saw that campus. Like, is this really a school or is this a resort or what? What's going on here? Talk us through that. Oh yeah, no. It was, it, I mean, it's it was unbelievable. It really was unbelievable. Like, it, Pepperdine and Malibu is just it is like a different world. Um, and so when I arrived, I was just I got completely swept up in it all <laughs> as you <laughs> as you could expect. So I came in January, which was halfway through the school year but the start of the team season and 
Um, actually, what, what happened was uh, Glenn Bassett, who had just taken over from Alan Fox, he actually uh, had to re- resign really quickly. I think he had family, uh, really serious family issues. Mm. And so I'd been there like two weeks and he had to resign. And then so then our assistant coach took over with the head coaching role, which is which was a, a complicated thing for him because we had a lot of older guys on the team and he'd been the role as the assistant coach is a lot different than the head coach. So he'd he'd become very friendly with like a lot of the older guys. And so so in that season I rock up and as you say, I, I rock up to Malibu. Um and I, I I just finished I was sort of in the mind space where I was thinking up until then I want to be a pro player, right? Mm-hmm. But I'd sort of come to the conclusion I probably wasn't good enough. And so also when I arrived, I was like, okay, this will be a lot of fun, you know? So I wasn't in the space of I'm going to be a pro player or work to to be a pro player at that point. And so I just, that first semester was just, yeah, I just enjoyed myself. I didn't take school too seriously. Um, And we had, as I said, with the the coaching situation, probably not a lot of great leadership from a coaching point of view. And so, yeah, the first six months, it was awesome fun. But I, I, and by the end of the semester, I ended up having to go to summer school to stay in school because I'd failed out of a couple of classes, I think, and, uh, <laughs> and didn't do well at all in tennis. And the big, the, probably a you know, really important time in my, my life, I would say, was um, at the end of that semester because our assistant had stepped up. The team hadn't done great. They, they, um, a new head coach came in. And that was Peter Smith, who you know well, a yep. legendary college coach now, one of the greatest college coaches of all time. And and he bought some of his best players from Fresno State where he had been. And basically for me, because I'd had a terrible season, it meant that I'd gone from a full scholarship and he offered me, I think it was like 40% for the second year. And Pepperdine was a very expensive school and I couldn't afford it. So mm-hmm. I, I just got the shock of my life, like basically thinking, you know, here's this place that I just love having an awesome time, but I'm not going to be able to stay at. And uh, what happened was eventually you can, you can actually take a semester off one semester throughout the four years. And so what we worked out was if I had a 40% scholarship, if I went back to Australia again for six months and came back in the next, next January, that would be 80% for half the year. And so uh, we worked out that I could do that. And so that's what I decided to do. But that really, that really shocked me. From then I took, I just thought, you know what, this is an incredible opportunity. I don't want to mess it up again. Uh, I came home to Australia and I worked with Michael Fox really intensely for several months. And I just was super professional, like I was on the tour, you know, like, mm. like, a, and, and I just worked incredibly hard. And I just came back then in my second year with the mindset of, I just want to make the best of this. And from then on, I still had a great time. It was, it was still, it was just incredible fun. But, but I found a better balance, and I, and I was, um, you did from there on did, did really well, and was able to then earn bigger scholarships that allowed me to to stay there for the full four years. So, yeah, and uh, interesting, and probably, well, I I met you after you'd come back from Australia, so okay. I. I yep. saw you definitely in more a more serious mode. I think you were one of the four Aussies on the team at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, was... that's the other thing. I came at the same time as my best mate Oliver Schweitzer, so we went in yeah. together. Who you, you know Ollie well, yep. and uh, <laughs> we came together, and we were probably got a bit carried away together in the first semester. So, <laughs> yeah. 
And, and Ollie ended up having a great college career also down, uh, end up going to UC Irvine, but a tremendous athlete. And, you know, and it, it is a special thing to get one of these college scholarships, or particularly coming from Australia, where you really don't know a lot about America, the American system. And part of your career, which we'll get into your later career, is you've helped a lot of people get over here and kind of understand what the process is and the pathways and everything else. Um, just staying with the college for the moment, in your senior year, uh, you had terrific success in doubles, particularly with uh, our mate Sebi. Why don't you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah. So, as I said, when I came back, I started taking it a lot more seriously. And, uh, yeah, I formed a great doubles partnership with Sebastian Graf from France uh, my, from my junior year, so our last, my last two years. and. Yeah, we got to maybe two in the nation, I think, yeah. uh, in my senior year as a doubles team, which was, it, I, I mean, I'm really looking back now on my college career, like I'm super proud of it because, as I said, in that first semester, I was struggling to make the, the singles lineup, playing sort of in and out of the singles lineup and um, and not very successful, maybe one, probably not even 50% of my matches and and and. Now, in terms of marketing my business and so forth, I went back and looked at my stats and so forth from the time when I came back under Peter Smith. And I think, I think uh, it would still stand that that uh, I had the, the I, I would have the second best singles and doubles combined winning percentage in Peter Smith's um, coaching career behind Steve Johnson. Yeah, uh, right. So that's something that I'm really really proud of. Um, I played low in the singles lineup, but I played high in the doubles lineup and. And and yeah, with my doubles partnership with Seb was awesome. We we didn't lose very much, and uh, we we were one of the best teams in the com- country for sure. And um, in in the one one of the, the the highlights, then the lowlights of my college career, I guess, was well towards as a team, we had a great team that year. Yeah. We were two in the nation, I think, as a team, to maybe number two seed for the NCAs in the in the in in May in Georgia. Um, after Stanford, who had an awesome team, they would have been hard to beat. But unfortunately, we lost early in the team event. Um, and then in the doubles, myself and Seb went to Georgia, and we were into the quarterfinals. And we were we were a good chance to win it. We were, the, I think, the highest seed left in the tournament. And I was, we were warming up before the match, and and Peter Smith just rolled the balls out onto the the court. And I was just running around doing the, you know, high knees and whatever and didn't see the ball come out and landed on the ball and tore ligaments in my ankle and um, and basically played, tried to play the match with torn ligaments and I couldn't serve volley. I couldn't, I couldn't move basically, but the guys we were playing were just choking because they knew how injured I was. And we, were, we actually got up a set and a break in the, in the quarters against the guys that actually won the tournament. Um, but it was getting worse and worse, and and eventually we we lost the match, and yeah, that put me out for a couple of months then. But yeah, so it was. Um, but it, but college tennis for me is one of the highlights of my life. Like I just love the competition and the team playing for the team, and just you know all the travelling and the fun you have with your team. Like it's it's it is an incredible opportunity. So I don't know if you have listeners of families and and. Um, kids contemplating college sports or even kids who play sports now, I really encourage them to open up to those possibilities if they're from another country and maybe don't know that much about uh, US college college opportunities. Um, but in the States, it's obviously well known. It's a great motivator for kids, which is, which is awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's a, it is a great opportunity. And I, if I re, if I recall that time correctly, your parents had flown out from Australia to yeah. see, to watch you play. Yeah, and I was tracking moment to moment. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> but but I think, and, and we'll get into this also the the trials and tribulations of the physicality of our body and our our moral compass and. And you and I, um, I come from probably a psychological, spiritual background, and you and I had have had many debates around, you know, what does it take to be a great athlete? And you were very motivated at the time around, you know, it's all mental, Harry. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I'd be like, well, it's a bit of a combination, you know, and uh, it's probably a combination of physicality too, but... Um, you're you're a true warrior on the tennis court. There's there's probably a signature move that you have, which is running directly at the ball as it's coming at you. <laughs> there's no one more warrior like on a doubles court than I think you yourself. Uh, and so, moving from college, you moved into your pro career. You did get to play professional tennis and travel for several years, uh, particularly on the doubles. Why don't you share a little bit about that and what that was like for you? Yeah, so by the end of my college career, that was what was great because, as I said, I was definitely not uh, not a chance to have any success really uh, before college at my level. But through those four years, I became good enough to give doubles a crack. So that's what I did. And uh, I think I played, might have been three, three and a half years after college. And uh, once again, it was a different experience, but it was in a, a lot of, lot of fun once again just and, and difficult at times like travel but basically just traveling the world non-stop just following following tournaments around the world i got to about 130 in the world in in doubles um yeah played a couple of tour events got to play wimbledon mixed doubles um and so yeah it was just it was awesome fun it was it was a great thing to do when you're young is just travel around the world doing what you love if i look back on it now one of the one of the challenges was at that level. Obviously, didn't have any money in terms of trying to get support or coaching, and so you're literally on your own. Yeah. And so over that over time, like that that took its toll. I think I I think probably for the last year or so, I was starting to contemplate once again the idea that you know maybe I could scratch by and play a few more years. And but but I I I I came to the place where I thought you know what I'm not good enough to. Um, really make a living a good living out of this and and after three or three and a half years of traveling the world and uh, in that fashion like it does get tiring you know and it does uh and expensive. Um, yeah and it's expensive and and yes. so forth so so um yeah so that it, it was yeah incredible fun I, I i know specific um you know specific stories but it was it was, you know, lots of lots of highs, but lots of lots of lows of losing big matches. I think I, when I was around 130 in the world, my real goal was trying to get to the level I'd be in Grand Slams. Uh, and I, uh, there was a couple of tournaments in a row that really started um, having me think that it might be time to give it away. Where I lost seven six in the third in a big tournament in about the quarters or semis, mm. and then. Um, and then I got a wild card because I was playing doubles with John Huey, who you know well from Hong yep. Kong, and he um, he got us a wild card into the Hong Kong Open, and we were playing Josh Eagle and Sandon Stolly in the first round, 
in um, in the Hong Kong Open, and he, obviously a huge match for us. And led four one in the third, led five three forty fifteen, I think, and yeah. absolutely choked. Like just got <laughs> so tight, just <laughs> knew what a huge opportunity it was for us. Um, so I think in the end we lost three or four ma- uh, match points and and lost seven six in the third. So that was a that was a a really uh, hu- huge loss because that those couple of tournaments at that time probably would have got me around a hundred in the world, which which would have given me the opportunity to probably play in the play in the play in the slams. Um, yes. Another another brutal loss was Wimbledon qualifying two thousand three. I was actually playing Scott Draper, who I talked about before, and Peter Luksak, and I was playing with Alan Jones, another Aussie guy, and we. Um, uh, we led seven five five four thirty love serving to to qualify. Well, we it was first round, but we knew they were lucky losers, so we knew that we were going to be in if we won that match, and and lost that match. So that was a tough one to take because obviously the chance to play Wimbledon is just you know an absolute dream for every player. So as it turned out, I ended up getting in the mixed doubles, which was awesome. But the to 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 not uh, win that match was took a few. Uh, a few days for sure to yeah. to, uh, to over, get over. Yeah, it's interesting. I just did a, an interview with Grant Doyle, who you know, and and yep. uh, another friend and client of mine, uh, Scott Arnold, who's a terrific golfer from Australia. And we, we, you know, we're in these discussions around, you know, what it's like on the tour. You know, and I think people do have a perception, or it must be such a, a great life, but. There really is a lot of hardship. At, uh, I don't want to say hardship because that would be... Um, it's all relative. Uh, uh, yeah, it's all relative, exactly, which we'll get to as well. Um, but it's not easy. How's that? And if you don't, it's not glamorous uh, unless you're really at the, at the top. And even then, it's still difficult. So it's uh, putting things in perspective. Having having said that, was there a career highlight of yours or a match that you recall where you go, um, wow, that really winning? Off the top of my head, we did. John and I also um, we played in the China Open one year, and that was the only main draw tour event match that I won. So I'd probably say that one we won seven six in the third mm-hmm. um, uh, against the you know, guys that were well entrenched in the, in the top 50 in the world as it, um, as a team. So that, that on the, on the tour level was probably the highlight of, of, um, of, of my, um, yeah, my double doubles career in, in, I played the Japan open and played Michael Chang. Um, and that was actually supposed to be on center court. He was a huge, obviously huge in Asia. Yes. And um, I think it was Hewitt was going to play the singles and then we were going to play against Chang and Habati on the on center court to a full house uh, but it rained and in the end we got moved to an outside court there was still a big crowd and so forth but um uh, but yeah that was that was a highlight because just chang growing up you know he was he was yeah, a, absolutely he, he was such a legend um but probably i mean my biggest tennis uh highlights or memories are college, the college stuff like playing playing um at georgia in the ncaa finals against georgia in front of like five thousand. yeah Drunk college Georgian <laughs> kids um, was was amazing, like just in, in, incredible. So yeah, just just because I love the college stuff so much, love playing for the team, and and uh, yeah, I, I loved everything about college tennis. So it, that was that was definitely definitely a highlight. Yeah, 
Well, I, I know Peter loved you uh, having you as on his team because you fired up fired up the team in in a way that uh, not many can. So then, from your professional career, you moved back to Australia. Is that correct? And then yep. uh, went back to school. Talk to us through a little bit of that. Yeah. So I finished playing. I was actually coaching towards when I was still playing. So I coached oh, that's right. Peter Clark and yep. uh, Irish Aussie guy. Uh, and so I was playing doubles pretty much for maybe the, nearly last year I was playing doubles but coaching him. So I was really playing doubles at the tournaments that he was playing, and so that transitioned me into coaching. So I was coaching. Uh, I, I started coaching, but then I sort of figured, I, I, I figured, you know, from a competitive point of view, like I, I underestimated how difficult coaching was going to be <laughs> and, and trying to influence others. And so... <laughs> Particularly, I had I started my coaching with a couple of really tough clients, like Clarky and another guy, Andrew Dara. Was they're pretty loose mentally, so so that then made me think, you know what, I need to get a better hang of the mental parts of coaching. And so, as I came back to Australia, I got I reengaged with Michael Fox, who I talked about before, and and um, and with talking with him, I decided to finish my psych degree because I had a minor in psychology from Pepperdine. And so I just coached and went through the process of becoming a, a sports psychologist basically over the next few years. And, um, yeah, so that led me down the track of, of moving into sports psych full-time. Um, I actually ended up doing like a bit of clinical stuff along the way, which you tend to do. Um, mm-hmm. So I did quite a mix of stuff for a year or two. And, and eventually, um, just through, because of my history in tennis and um, – I started naturally getting more tennis clients and so forth. And eventually, probably in about 2012, 13, I decided, well, I'm just going to focus specifically on tennis. Uh, and I started my business, Mentally Tough Tennis, and and started working with um, with tennis players of all ages, standards, and, and so forth. So, yeah, so that was sort of the journey after playing to coaching into sports life. And what have you what have you learned and cared about doing sports psych and and working with players? Um, I think it's it's just all the great things that come out of out of sport and competing and, and tennis, like the fun of competition, like just the the uh, it's just an awesome thing to do is to compete, like the challenge of helping people improve skills and you know as humans we naturally like to achieve stuff and improve at stuff and so that to me like if you think of the idea of values you know that that to me is just an important value in life is just engaging in challenges um i love like building just relationships with with people and clients and connecting with that and then through you know through this job you get to experience some of the stuff that you did when you're competing right you still feel the same sort of stuff as a coach or as a um you know as a as a psych you know cheering your players on and and like seeing them do well and so forth um and just that it's it's contributing to others like it's Mm. uh, as a tennis player when i was young it's a more of a selfish life where you're self-driven and focused on yourself and what what you're trying to achieve and so forth whereas um it's it's i enjoy just seeing others um get to go after what they want and contributing to that. So uh, I I would say that that's an important part of of what I do. And I guess what I get out of it, I also that's what I encourage 
people and players I work with to do is to try to get the, like a more a broader perspective, I guess, of why they're playing and their purpose for for um, uh, for for playing. Like it's 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 more than just the winning and losing. It's the um, it's the pure competition. It's the challenges. It's the it's the connection with the fun of being present and in that moment of just being like doing something that's 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 awesome. Um, and 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 I talk to players a lot about now, you know, uh, which I never really thought about as a player. But it's about like when a when a player goes out to compete, they're also contributing to the other player's life, right? Like mm-hmm. without both players, good point. They uh, they can't play, so it's a shared experience. And if you listen to the very best players in the world, like Djokovic and Nadal, they talk a lot about this, and they I think they've probably got an advantage of this overall, a more balanced perspective of competing. Um, and the, the benefits that come out of it, regardless of whether you win or lose, is is crucial. I think. Well, with great with their great competitors, I think they they get to learn and make themselves better. That's what yep. a, a, a true uh, rival is, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I've really enjoyed about working with with athletes is the sport is reflective of life. You know, and you get to reflect back, you know, kind of where your strengths and weaknesses are. And particularly tennis, I think it exposes a lot. It's it's hard to be unseen on a tennis court, even if someone's not watching. You know, it's, it, there's a great vulnerability uh, that, that can show up on, on the tennis court. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I would agree with that, yeah. And to touch into your personal life a little bit, uh, Anthony, if you if you care to share, I don't know how much you care to share, but you've gone through some some physical things and and some health things that have absolutely undoubtedly changed your life and your family's life and those around you and the people you myself included and and your loved ones. So maybe share a little bit about that and some of the things you're probably still learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So probably was two thousand. Now I'm going back. End of 2015. Um, yeah, life was good. Life was good. Uh, the first thing I remember was I was myself. I was doing a lot of running at the time, so I was mm. into um, half marathons, and I'd done a marathon. Um, and so I was out for a run with my wife, and usually I would, I being competitive, I would run out in front of her, and we'd we'd have our spots that we'd go to, and then I'd try to catch her on the way back. <laughs> and we were running this day and we were running this day and I just couldn't I couldn't run any faster than her. And she we were sort of having a laugh about it at the time. We're like, <laughs> oh, you know, look, this is weird and whatnot. But uh over the next couple of days I just started getting more like weaker and weaker. And then a couple of days later I got out of bed and I literally couldn't walk across the room and I was supposed to go and do a tennis session actually. And yeah, within a few hours I was just um like in having sort of convulsions and yeah, couldn't 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 walk, and um, <clears throat> so I was in hospital, and and that started a, a real journey of about three three and a half years, um, where at the start I had it, I, I guess to summarise the the what happened to me in in the end was um, I had some sort of like metabolic failure um, where my body I guess stopped metabolizing food properly and mm. and it went into my went into a state of like muscle atrophy throughout my body and and so I just became increasingly weak 
and um and then that set off like different systems in my body like started to sort of fail i guess so my what's what the autonomic nervous system is this system that uh controls things that where our unconscious systems in our body things like blood flow heart rate um temperature control Mm -hmm. um and, and that started to to fail and um and so but no one really knew what was happening and so i just had this incredible weakness like at, at, during good times i was sort of in a wheelchair i could walk like 20 meters and so forth or i'd be in a wheelchair if i w- had to go longer um and and i i would improve somewhat but then what happened was the next year i mean i had this for months and the next year i was sort of doing a bit better and i thought i oh, screw this like i'm just going to try to go surfing and I went for a surf and I just, I came, I, I knew I was in trouble out in the water and I came in and I literally got to the shore and couldn't move. Wow. And that put me in this downhill spiral of this, uh, this illness. And, um, and so, yeah, at my, at my worst, I, I went like a year and a half where I was just completely bed bound, like n- literally not able to get out of bed like people off I talk to people about and they say oh you know you went to the toilet and what I said no I, I was literally in a like a in in bed for years at a time and my my muscles became so weak it affected my whole body so like my um, diaphragm basically became so weak that I couldn't talk so I I went over a year at one point where I just didn't couldn't say a word I was just like the doctors that have talked about it people who had similar states like it's very rare that people get like me but uh, they talked about it uh, who've treated people particularly in the states as it like a death lights death like state where you they've only mm. really see people like like this in the last days of life when they've had hiv or cancer and Amazing. and you're just in this yeah i was just in a literally like this death light state is a good way to think about it where i just lay in bed i couldn't even sit up because my body lost the ability to pump blood against gravity um, I couldn't talk, but I, even more than that, like I was so weak, I couldn't even, like I, I was so weak, I couldn't really smile or I couldn't do anything. I was literally just just lying there. So, um, and then you do things where if I use too much energy uh, in any one time, uh, like trying to sit up or going to the bathroom on my commode, which was attached to the bed or stuff like that, you, you could... Um, it would put me in this state, which is really undescribable. It's like you go like 48 hours, you just can't eat, you can't you can't do anything and you're in this, you, to describe it, I guess, things that happen is like I couldn't even stand the ticking of a clock. Um, wow. I couldn't stand to see people. Like you, the system couldn't tolerate actually seeing people. So you, I couldn't have people in the room and it was crazy. So, yeah, so that lasted for a long time. And then, um, and then uh, I mean, Fortunately, I, I did a lot of, obviously, during that time, I did a lot of, um, I'm a big believer now, and sort of your mind able to influence your, the physicality of your body and so forth. So I did a lot of, um, you know, Eastern um, uh, tradition stuff, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of visualizations and, and so forth. But um, because there's no known cure, like for people in my, who have similar symptoms, mm. not many recover. But um, yeah, I, I was lucky enough that I started improving and over about a year, 2018 to 2019, I slowly improved. So over a couple of months, so I started to be able to take, like talk words again. You know, I, I could say a sentence and then I could say two sentences and, and I started to be able to sit up again. And um, yeah, over a period of like 12 months, 
uh, or probably a little more. I made I made uh, what was a full recovery, um, and so yeah, it was a, obviously a brutal, a brutal experience that is hard to hard to describe uh, to what it was like. Um, but a great thing that came out of it was early on in the process, I was obviously getting tested. Mm-hmm. Um, medical tests, every medical test you can think of. And one of the things that they found was that I had a dilated aorta that was getting, that was in, like getting bigger and bigger over time. And so they found that out and they were, tr- they were tracking that because uh, what happens is at some point it, when it gets big enough that it, it bursts and it's, it's fatal. Mm-hmm. And so, but it, it doesn't have any symptoms. And so luckily when I recovered, I continued to get that tracked. And, and earlier this year, um, the, when I got it tracked again, it had grown to the point where they said, you need to get this, you need to get your aorta replaced because you're you know, now at risk of, um, of, of, of it bursting. Um, and, and, and without that, I, I'm quite sure I wouldn't be alive because I was doing so much exercise. And even at the point where they found it in 2015, at that point, the recommendation was be you shouldn't be exercising at all with, where where it was at at that point so it's pretty likely i would have died you know do it when i was out running or whatever at some point in the next couple of years so i was just yeah very very lucky overall to to still be here uh, i yeah. had the, the the open heart surgery about four months ago um so now i'm a new man mate i'm back and feeling great <laughs> again and uh and ready for the the next stage of my life i've, I've got a young family now i've been lucky to Enough to have a uh, a little. I mean, girl. during that time, you had a family. I mean, you're, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, well, after now she's only ten months, but uh, right. yeah. So so when I recovered, um, that was probably 2019. Um, yeah, we we started um, thinking of myself and my wife Kath started thinking about the possibility of having a uh, a family, and we we're lucky to do, do did IVF, and um, yeah. So Felicity was born last year. So yeah. A new lease on life. It's it, yeah. I'm, I'm, obviously I'm glad for many things, but certainly that you're still alive because I actually just had a friend three months ago die of that heart yeah. failure, um, and he has a little five year old. So it's it's um, it, it shows you how fragile life can be, and and what a blessing it can be. You know when you when you've certainly when you've gone through what you've gone through. I mean you've got now uh not just a new lease on life but so much experience to share with people around you know the value of health the value of taking care of yourself the value of uh you know living every day till uh, so it's good and that you have your family and um you know there's no there's no question you're counting your blessings oh yeah yeah no that's looking back I would never ever want anyone to have to go through what anything like <laughs> I went through, even for a short time. But yeah. but now that I'm healthy again, it it absolutely is has radically changed my perspective on life, I guess. And you know, I was forced into basically having to try to figure out like how could you get some meaning or value from life when you can't move or talk or yeah. you know, or you when you're completely helpless and reliant on people non-stop to keep you alive and and um and over a long period and also like contemplating death and um assuming you're dead you're dying because yeah. you know you're just getting weaker and weaker and no one can tell you what's happening and 
um and yeah just just all sorts of things that that um that that forced me into into uh, reshaping how i see life and how i um how to try to get value out of life in those circumstances so the benefit at coming out the other side is that you know although although it's you know i i, I thought you know many times i thought well if i could ever talk again I'd be the happiest person in the lot in in the world. Or if I could ever walk again, yeah. that would be like in that would be a the miracle. greatest thing, a miracle. It, yeah. it would be literally a miracle. Or if I could ever feel, yeah, just all those things. You, so often I thought about that 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 and 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 I do have that to a degree. Like I have now, I have a greater ability to just be happy with the littlest things, with nothing basically. I'm, uh, you know, but it is interesting because you know still. I still have to work at it. Like a lot of the um, the routines and a lot of the things I did during that time, I still practice, and I mm. and I actually wish I'd practice them more. Like I do get a bit lazy on it, but because um, because without it, over time you do I do find myself slipping back to like a com- you know really competitive nature, or maybe not as grateful for the simple things and stuff like that. That's I think that's still a degree human nature. Yes, but yes, and now I'm. I do have it natural. I do have a lot more naturally just from the training almost that I had to do during that period to be more grateful naturally, to be less competitive, to be more balanced, to enjoy the present moment and be more mindful and stuff like that. But it is something that I still actually have to work at, interesting enough, because if I don't, it does. I do find myself sort of slipping back into, um, into uh, my natural um personality you know and the natural desire to get more and you know have more and and being human be more competitive and 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 so forth so for you know one of the my outlooks on life if you will is that everyone's got their cross to bear and we come equipped for what that cross is but it's one thing to have that as a let's call it a working theory it's another thing to have really walked through something where you've had to overcome something massive um, that that you've that you're talking about, and I think when you have had the experience, when you talk about it, there's just so it, it carries so much more weight than um, than just some theory. And you know, only too well, you know, going to university is a lot of theory. You know, particularly yeah. in the psychological world, there's all these theories that we study. Um, but once you've lived it and carry the experience with you, I mean, it, it just carries, it touches people in such a way that uh, it's irreversible, I believe. So I, my friend, am so glad that you're healthy and and uh, kicking butt once again. There's no question you're, you've got tremendous abilities to not just help yourself, but your family and, and your clients. Uh, tell us a little bit about just perhaps uh, your website and how people could reach out to you if they're interested to know more about uh, you, the work that you do in sports psychology and the corporate world that you're working in also. Yeah, so I'm uh, so my main business is Mentally Tough Tennis, so that's just working with tennis players. So, yeah, if there's any tennis players out there uh, looking to um, – to improve results, basically, but also, as I talked about before, just ch- perhaps change their perspective on tennis and get a more balanced perspective, then that's that's what I really work on with with tennis players of all ages and standards and so forth. 
So that's mentallytoughtennis.com. Uh, you can check that out. Um, that, that'll go into our, our podcast notes just for our listeners. Okay, cool. And then I'm really now, based on this last part of my life, as we've talked about, yeah, starting to really consider what, what I'll do do next. I am involved with a, um, with a corporate startup where we're interested in helping people within organisations improve wellbeing. And so mm-hmm. that's called MIBO, M-I-B-O, um, and that will be um, that will be at about by the start of next year. So that's really looking working with with organisations that want to help uh, their people, their um, employees improve improve well being. Um, so that that's coming up. And then I'll also what I'm really interested now in, in now, which I will will start to do more of. Um, there's no website yet, but um, it's really like like we talked about helping people overcome challenges. I think that's that's what I get a lot of questions about. Given the my yeah. my health health challenges uh, now, it's what I find is people do just going through their own challenges. We know that challenges come in all shapes and sizes and so forth throughout life. It's a pretty much a constant, or not if not a constant, frequent frequently we we all face challenges. And so I'm I'm um, just been really reflecting on and, and thinking about you know what was it that I sort of did to get through the, the health challenges and how that can my experience can really hopefully help help others um, overcome or or respond as well as possible to to their own challenges whether it be health or corporate or you know what whatever um, yes. thinking about the principles that I sort of tried to apply and, and so forth because it was like um and like an interesting experience and i'm very actually when you talk about tennis like i think just on its own that's what i encourage people to do is that don't underestimate things like playing sport and the skills you learn from playing sport yeah um and the character that's formed absolutely and the skills you develop to develop you know the the abilities to overcome challenges like i i think it's not just from a mental point of view like surviving what I did reasonably well mentally, I think I never would have been able to do that if it wasn't for all the work I'd done in tennis, you know, and all the skills. It was, a lot of it was the same. I was applying a lot of the same stuff, you know, to to trying to get by when I was really so unwell. So, um, yeah, so that, that I'm definitely going to go down that path as well, doing doing uh, just trying to help help people uh, overcome challenges, really. So, well, your email will be available for people who would like to reach out to you. Um, I couldn't thank you more than being my guest here, Anthony. It's it's a, a real pleasure. It's I still find it trippy sometimes that we ended up in similar lines of work uh, yeah. because we're d- certainly different characters, but we, we're definitely connected. And there's no doubt if I see you again uh, in the near future, we, we'd even gamble on playing marbles. So it would, <laughs> would, wouldn't matter... <laughs> wouldn't matter how we compete somehow it's going to be in there absolutely Um, all right mate any last words you would like to leave without for our listeners no mate i I think yeah if anyone's if everyone's keen to reach out then um they're certainly welcome to um but yeah real pleasure to to catch up mate and um and and for your listeners you've i would just say you've you know been an awesome awesome friend throughout my life and and I've certainly experienced your um, your great skills from a consulting point of view and a, a friendship point of view. So, um, yeah, can't recommend you as as uh, highly enough as well, mate. In terms of uh, in terms of people, um, 
same sort of stuff, right? Look, overcoming challenges and and um, and, and so forth. So yeah, good pleasure, uh, big pleasure to to catch up, mate. And uh, let's let's talk again soon. Very good. Thank you so much.